Hey, this is Frank Hannon. I'm the lead guitarist of Tesla, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. Hope you uh, enjoyed last week's episode, where we did a uh, kind of a top five countdown slash comparison of Michael Wagner's awesome album work. And if you haven't caught that one, you can go back to uh, either on uh, iTunes or over on FocusOnMetal.net and check out episode 507. And before we dive into what's on tap for this week... Just want to say that uh, this week will mark the uh, last episode of our uh, 2021 first half season. That's right. uh, After this next week, Richie and I and everybody else here at Focus on Metal will be heading out on our annual summer break. I'm not sure why I was talking to Richie about this as well, but it seems like this year was actually more stressful in getting out the weekly show than uh, 2020 was. Not sure why that was, but uh, definitely... We are looking forward to having some weeks where we're actually not putting out a show and maybe getting outside and, uh, you know, now things are opening up, maybe enjoying a little bit of the summer as well. So again, enjoy this week's episode and you're not going to hear from us for uh, a few weeks anyways for our annual summer break and we'll uh, take it as it comes, see uh, exactly at what point in the summer we're going to be hopping back into it. But uh, rest assured, we'll be back already cooking up stuff for the second half of the year for you. So with that out of the way, let's hop into what is on track for this week. So this week, Richie uh, reached out to Key Marcello. You guys know him best as the guitarist in Europe. And Richie wanted to do one of those 30-year throwbacks again. So he uh, gave Key a call to talk to him all about the uh, 1991 album Prisoners in Paradise. So Richie ended up having a long talk with Key on this one. And it's also interesting because one of our episodes way back where we talked to producer Bo Hill, there was some discussion about this album as well. So a little bit of a different story between Key's version of what happened and Bo's version of what happened. And you'll hear all of that and more this week on the show. And also, you know, we do talk a little bit with Key about the, uh, you know, the original album intent, how the label wanted to change it and all that. So just to let you guys know that uh, there is like five songs that were supposed to be on this album that the label had them pull. And they're never been released out officially. But if you look on YouTube, for either uh, Wild Child, Don't Know How to Love No More, Wanted Man, Little Sinner, or Never Gonna Say Goodbye, you should be able to hear those unreleased demos that were supposed to be on this album up on the uh, always, always helpful YouTube. And with that, why don't I turn it over to Richie and Key Marcello talking about Europe's 1991 album, Prisoners in Paradise. Hello? Hi, is that Key? Hi, Richie. How you doing? Okay, so the reason I have you on, we're going to talk about the 30th anniversary of Prisoners in Paradise, and then we'll talk a little bit about, in the end, about Out of This World, if that's okay with you. Sure. So I want to go back to the album before Prisoners in Paradise, the the Out of This World record that you did with Ron Nevison. Now, one of the things that album, I think, got a lot of praise for was 
your guitar tone and your guitar solos on it. So w- when it came time to do the follow-up record, did, did you want to work with Ron Nevison again? Uh, well, this, the thing is, it's kind of a complicated story. That I might as well take it. We worked with Ron Nevison and... Uh, what the dynamics in, in the music, in the songwriting in the band changed for, before the next album of Prisons in Paradise. First of all, we moved to LA and started recording and uh, rehearsing and recording demos over there. You know, we had a place at SIR on Santa Monica Boulevard and just start, start hammering out new songs. And, and they were heavier and, uh, more risk based than with what I, you know what we'd ever done before that. So we were aiming for Bob Rock, which we told our then manager, Herbie Herbert, who um, also managed Journey and all those bands. And he uh, he called his friend Bruce Fairburn and made a deal. So uh, at some point, me and Joey went up to Vancouver and visited Bob Rock, had dinner with him, and decided. That we're going to work on this. We had a handshake, everything, an agreement, everything was fine. Harvey and Bruce Fabern had an agreement as well. Then uh, I went to the West Indies uh, to the house, and the phone was ringing, which it never did. Nobody had that number. Picked up the phone and was heard calling from San Francisco saying, We're in deep shit here. Just got a phone call from Bruce Fabern and they're going to fuck us, basically, because they're going to do the Metallica Black Album, which turned out to be the Black Album. So, Herbie, being a, a bit of an old-fashioned deal-maker, he opened the deals like that, with a, uh, sealed with a handshake, instead of a 100-page contract, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which came back to bite us in the ass then. So we were pretty much fucked at that point. I mean, we didn't have a plan for any record since the producer jumped the project. And uh, the reason it became Bo Hill was that I met him previously, just some weeks prior to this, at the Concrete Convention. And we talked a bit because I wanted him to produce Easy Action before I was in, in Europe. And he asked me, what are you doing with Europe? I would love to produce you. And I said, I'm sorry, we, you know, we're going to do an album with Mark Rock which was all set to go at that point. And he said, well, you know how this business is. You know this business. Shit happens. Here's my card. You know, call me if anything happens. So I just called him from the West Indies in a real bad line and told him. And he answered, Bo? And I said, Bo, shit happens. <laughs> and he knew exactly what I was talking about. And this was like, such a long shot, you know, back in the 80s, those guys, Ron Everson and Bo Hill and, 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 and all those really named producers, they had, they were booked for two or three years ahead. So uh, it was just a long shot. And I asked him, can you do the record? I mean, we talked a little bit about it. Can you find space in your calendar to do this? We have the studio booked and everything. And he asked me, how, how long? And I said, well, three weeks. And he said, fuck. But uh, he said, let me make a couple of phone calls. And he did. And he called me back like 10 minutes later and he agreed to do it. So that's how Bo Hill came in. Mm. Now, I interviewed Bo Hill a couple of years ago. And I asked him about this record. And 
we, we talked a little bit about it and the other, about a couple of days ago, because I knew I was talking to you, I, I listened to the interview again. Now, Bo's recollection on this is that Herbie Herbert gave him the songs and Bo came down and listened to the songs. But Joey came up to him and told him that Bo wasn't going to be working on the record, that you, were, you guys are going to work with Bob Rock, that Bo had already come down and heard the songs, but Bob Rock had already been chosen as, as a producer. That's what, that's what Bo told me. That's really weird. That's not what happened. You yeah. Know, he didn't mention the phone call from the West Indies. He said you guys were living in Turks and Caicos. Yes, we are. We were. That's yeah. where I, that, that was the place I was calling him from. Yeah. And I was alone at the house of Turks and Caicos at that point when I got the message from Herbie, but I called him, you know, and got him on board. So, uh, I don't know if they took, if they contacted him prior to this without my knowledge, but that sounds really strange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really I, weird. I, I know. It's yeah. just, when you started telling the story, I figured I'd tell you what Bo told me when it came to this record. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind, Bo. He's full of shit. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of, one of the, the thing is, sorry, go ahead, Keith. The, the thing is, Bo Bo Hill turned out to be an amazing producer to work with. We had so much fun; it was great, and I'm really proud of that album. You yeah. know how guitar players are. You know, I was really pleased with the sound of Out of This World and the way, well, the, the whole thing, the whole project went on, and and. Ron did an amazing sound with the guitars. I mean, uh, it sounds lovely. But you always want to go somewhere else on the next album, and so that that was that what was happened. You know, I wasn't even using Marshalls that much on Prisoners in Paradise. I was using Kitty Hawks. Some of it is Marshalls, but uh, Kitty Hawk was sort of a Marshall type amplifier, mm. German built. Jawohl. Mm. <laughs> Very so good. So, Key, t- tell me about becoming tax exiles. When exactly did that happen? Well, it happened. Uh, let me see if I can remember this correctly. So, you can come back and give me Bo Hill's version, which is completely different. <laughs> Just kidding. So, let's see. We started talking about moving out of Sweden because this is way back when you got ridiculous taxes, Morgan taxes. Uh, and uh, at one point, you know, people like Astrid Lindgren, the, the, the author who wrote uh, Pippa Longstocking, she got 110% in income tax. You know, if you don't tax plan, if you didn't tax plan during those times, uh, you were in deep shit. So what happened was we were talking about possible scenarios and one that seemed obvious was doing like the Swedish tennis players were doing they got a flat in Monte Carlo and you know on their way doing the tour playing tennis on the tour they just went to their flat went to Monte Carlo got a stamp of their passport and just went to the apartment and hang, hung out for a while and so they were sort of residing there but not really and that was the plan for us but it turned out that it didn't happen because three of the guys in the band, when we applied for residency in Monte Carlo, uh, they turned us down because three of the guys in the band had a criminal record. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, you know? Yeah. They don't let us in because people have a criminal record. So what happened was plan B 
was the Bahamas since we, we were doing great business in America at the time. And we tried that too and got the same answer. I mean, I even lived in the Bahamas for a year, but after a year, you know, the, with bureaucracy and all that, we got the answer for them as well. They were not going to let us in because of three of the members of the band had a criminal record. So that's, that's the reason why we ended up at Turks and Caicos Island. Um, now, what, I'm from Ireland, right? And in the 80s, there was a lot of, of musicians and artists that moved to Ireland. I think the, the one you'd probably know is uh, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, who still lives there. They had, yeah. they had, they had a tax exemption there. Was Ireland one of the countries yeah, you, look, you looked at to move? Not to my recollection. I don't know what, why that never came on the table, so to speak. I mean, that would have been an obvious choice because bah- the Bahamas and the West Indies is so far away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not practical, really. But uh, it was a group decision that was made. I mean, once we weren't allowed to uh, do the, the, the tax haven in Europe thing, well, meaning um, Monte Carlo and those places, we, we just went on to the Bahamas. I think we listened to our then manager, Thomas Erfman. Okay. Which was always a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so w- when when you guys moved, um, yeah. how, how many of you guys were married, had girlfriends and children? None of us had children. I mean, we were quite young. I mean, we went there to the first house we had. Uh, we rented a house together in the Bahamas just to get started, so to speak. After that, I got myself a townhouse on Mansell Beach Road, you know, like a town, three floors townhouse where I can have a studio and bedrooms and guest rooms and whatnot. But at the very beginning, we rented a big old house and we all got there. Uh, right after the, the end of the final countdown, U.S. tour. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking 1987. And the lot had girlfriends, except me. I didn't have one. I was single. So I, I was spending more, the, the most time in Bahamas, I would say, while the, other was, the others were all over the place in London and America and Sweden and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the deal. Okay. So one of the things Bo Hill said to me when I spoke to him that he used to like to do before he started recording albums was he'd go out with each individual band member for dinner and talk about what sort of record they wanted and and, and their concerns maybe with the way he recorded albums or, you know, just to put everything on the table. Did you go out to dinner with Bo beforehand? I mean, we went to dinner a lot of times. I can't recall if we went just the two of us. Was that what you meant? Yes. He would take out each of the members. Yeah. I can't recall. I mean, we went so many times to his, so many times to his favorite sushi place on Ventura Boulevard, or right off Ventura Boulevard. But I can't recall okay. dinner like that. No, I can't. I'm okay. sorry. Okay. Um, how, how much pre-production did you do on Prisoners in Paradise with Bo? Well, I mean, we were... We we pretty much had meat on our on our bones. We we've been writing a lot. We had tons of songs uh, and demos that we brought into the studio, and uh, 
from there, it pretty much went to discussing what songs was going to make the first batch and and start recording, you know. So uh, that was that. And you probably know the story already that after we recorded the first batch of songs, we had Epic, four bosses from Epic came over to the studio and listened to the whole album. And they just uh, notified us a couple of days later that we're not going to release the album in that uh, in that shape because I mean like label people they love stats and they just went and checked the stats and our biggest hit in America to that point was Carrie so they simply wanted more ballads ah so uh, yeah so we had to we had to take away a lot of, we had to kill a lot of darlings so to speak and it would have been a quite different album to, to be quite frank uh I mean, the, the the kind of energy and, and we picked up from hanging in America and especially in LA put its uh, mark on, on the, the results of the songs, of course. It was very tough and, and a bit darker and riffy. And a lot of those songs are living, living their own life on the internet right now under the name of the Baron Boys. Have you heard of this phenomena? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny you bring that up, yeah. Key, because... Bo Hill did the second winger record and the same thing happened with that record. They handed uh-huh. in they handed in the album in 1990 and the label re- rejected it and they had to go and write a couple of so- extra songs because they didn't hear the single on it. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, it's a shame though. I mean, the thing is, what happened with Prisons in Paradise, I'm, I'm proud of the album today. Now I can, I can you know, I was, well, after I, I got a chance to wrap my head around it, I started to accept the facts. But I know what an amazing album we had going there that would have survived brunch in a better way as well. Yeah. It would have been more more in, in, uh, in sync with what was going on at the time. Okay. Well, what happened now is that we made another hair metal album with a lot of ballads, which I I think really didn't work with the, with the times, and that's also one of the reasons why we chose to go on hiatus after that. I mean, we sold over a million albums pretty fast of Prisoners in Paradise, so the label came back to us and wanted to do a second one. I mean, if you sell a million records records for the label if they don't want to do a follow-up something wrong with them because they they don't really care about music they care about sales mm. so but we turned them down because we we felt that we didn't have a place in a music climate where Alison Chains and, and and Nirvana and uh, well Alison Chains are kind of dug but a lot of those bands didn't make any sense to us songwriting wise. So we didn't feel we had a place in that time of music. So we said, let's just take a break and absorb this and see what happens in the future. And then hiatus turned out to be very long. We didn't meet again to play until uh, the New Year's Eve, 1999. Oh. So when you say, Key, that the, the music was darker back back then for Prisoners in Paradise when you first did it, was it like the, the Europe albums now where they're more 70s vibe, a little bit more darker like that? Is is that what you were sounding like back in back in the early 90s? No, 
No, not really. I think it made it darker what's a bit of a strange word to pick right here. I mean, it was more riffy, and I don't know if you heard any of those songs, you know, the demos that are on the internet under the name of the Baron Boy, but there, there's a lot of more riff-based thinking in the whole writing. Songs like Rainbow Warrior and Wild Child and and those songs have a, a different feel to them, to them all together. It's not it's not really as light as a lot of the songs tend to be. Yeah. On Persons of Paradise. Okay. So, but I I'm, I have to add also I'm not a big fan of your new material since their union. It's not really my cup of tea. It's I'm more I'm more a song guy. I'm more melodic. But what I basically am at heart is a songwriter and I think what's, what the band is missing out on right now is some really catchy good strong songs okay okay we all we all know it's a great band but where are the songs that's my question but that's just what I think yeah yeah so what's the biggest difference between the way Bo Hill produced you and the way Ron Nevison produced you Oh, it's a lot of different things here. I mean, first of all, I love working with both of them, but it's with very different uh, scenarios altogether. I mean, uh, I remember, for instance, when we started tracking guitars, Ron Anderson had something like 54 by 12, you know, Marshall cabinets uh-huh. shipped to the studio and had a guy go around with, with a microphone and pick out the hotspots but we were sitting in the studio and he out of those 50 cabinets, 50 cabinets time four, time <laughs> four, you know, he found, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of the speaker elements. He found two that, that he liked, you know? So we put the, those two in a, in the cabinet and mic'd them up. And that was how we recorded all the guitars on the album. And it, they sounded really good. I mean, if, if you're that picky with finding the, rest, the right Celestians, you're going to have a great sound. Mm. So that that was the way he was working with that. And something I, I learned from him, and uh, and also he was very particular with 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 parts and and and, and keeping stuff uh, not not. And, uh, to try to avoid bumps in the song, you gotta have fill it up with keyboards when it, when the guitars go down and, and vice versa. Arrangements, pretty much. And with with Bow Hill, one thing that I really re- recall that, that was fun is that he uh, he liked to add acoustic guitars on all the songs, and not just the ballads and everything. And he wanted to have two guitars in stereo and then two guitars in Nashville tuning. Do you know, are you familiar with Nashville tuning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he did that. So those four extra performances he used. And even on the songs, I remember when I recorded those acoustic guitars, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me. You know, why are we going to use this on a song, which is primarily riffing, you know? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it just, he just used the the very high treble in it as a, a percussion instrument, you know. 
And Sam Francis used it as, you know, real acoustic guitars. So, but he wanted it, he was very adamant that he wanted, wanted it on all the tracks. So I put the time to, down to do that. Mm. And that's the first time I've heard about the Nashville tuning, which was pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. When the guys presented the songs to you uh, that you didn't actually write anything on, did they leave you alone to do the solos or were they very particular in, in the way you played them? Uh, are you talking about the call rights that Joey did? Yeah, like there's certain songs on Prisoners in Paradise that you don't have a writing credit on. And I, I'm just wondering when it came to doing the solos on that and writing the solos, did the guys leave you alone more or less to do it or did they say, look, I want the solo to sound like this? No, not at all. I, I remember nothing of the sort, actually. It's, I mean, I, I did my own solo marriage. Not to brag, but often I have the best ideas when it comes to guitar solos in mm. the bands I'm in. So I, I almost immediately get an idea when I hear uh, I mean, it, it wasn't a stretch for me to play a solo on I'll Cry For You, for instance. It's very melodic. I love songs like that. And uh, or halfway to heaven, which had, uh, which I almost immediately got an idea for how to pursue it mm. first time I heard the demo. There's certain songs on this album, and I'm I'm talking about All or Nothing, Halfway to Heaven. They have outside songwriters on them. Um, was that yeah. was that something you didn't like that you wanted the band to write the songs? No, I was I was never against. Uh, I was never against uh, outside writers at all. And as a matter of fact, we had a, a big argument regarding this when recording Out of This World. I don't know if you heard about that, but coming into the studio, Ron Anderson had a cassette tape from Diane Warren with a song that she wrote specifically for us. Because he worked with her. And that was... Uh, uh, look away you know what happened was he played it up in the studio I loved it and uh, uh, everybody liked it except Joey and his comment was we're not a fucking cover band <laughs> he said in 1988 <laughs> and uh, we didn't record it and so what happened Ron Nelson brought it on his next, pro next project which was Chicago, and they had a number one hit single on Billboard Hot 100 with it. Wow. As a matter of fact, it was Chicago's biggest hit ever, even the, the stuff that it with Peter Cetera. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a fucker, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. You, know, you don't know it at the time, Key. It's what's going to happen no, in the future. No, you never know it. But I felt it. I mean, it was a no-brainer that Diane Warren was writing hits. Oh yeah, and that's one of one of the reasons why why would why we pick Ron Evans. I mean, he he did all these wonderful records with the UFO and 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 the Rocker bands, obviously. But I mean, he did the the beautiful heart stuff yeah. working with Diane Warren. So of course he was going to bring something to the table, and he, he brought us a hit song, but we chose not to record it. Actually, I chose to record it <laughs> and the other members, except Joe and the manager. And Joe and the manager, 
and well, Thomas Erkman pretty much did what Joey said, and this was the first time I realized that Thomas Erkman wasn't Europe's manager. He was, in fact, Joey's manager, mm. which is a big difference. Mm. Yeah. So, Key, I'm going to go through some the tracks on the album, and you can tell me sure. what your memories are of recording them or even writing them, um, if you can remember like, at all back then. So we'll start with track one, All or, all or Nothing. What, do you have any memories of recording that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a great song. And Eric Martin, and, and his, uh, who, we, who we knew, the singer from uh, Mr. Big, wrote that mm-hmm. together with his co-writing guy. And, and Joey was involved, uh, to my recollection, as well. It's, it's really cool. It's got sort of a funky drum groove to it. I really like that riff. And that's, that's where Bo Hill came up with some cool ideas. He got the idea of dumping the guitar riff with a, um, a digital small guitar amplifier. What were they called? I forgot. Do you remember those, you know, like Walkman-sized guitar amps? Mm, I, I don't. But, no, you don't. Okay. It was actually built by the guy from Tom Schultz built those. Oh, the guy from Boston. I got to interject here that the uh, Schultz original Rockmans as well as the original Basemans were amazing pieces of gear. And it's one of those pieces of gear that I wish I had never, ever gotten rid of. I had both of those. I had them in the rack mount system, the whole thing. They were actually amazing. And I didn't even appreciate just how incredible they were back then. But those things are just, like I said, an incredible piece of gear. And they go for big bucks now. I've constantly look up on Reverb and see if there's one that's within a decent price range slash in decent shape to uh, be able to have one again and mate that up with my very rare ADA micro cab. And those two things together are essentially the uh, sound of Def Leppard's Hysteria. I can get a little bit close to it, or uh, I guess pretty close to it, with Amplitude 5's new release with the uh, Satriani pack, where they do have a uh, Schultz Rockman model in the Satch package, but it's not the same as the original one. And I'm not just saying that because uh, Tom is from the area that truly is one of those few pieces of gear that I wish I had never traded in. The guy from Boston, he he, he built those and, and that kind of made a fortune from it. But after a while, nobody wanted to use it because it just basically just had one sound. But Bo Hill realized that that very trebly MIDI stuff from that machine would work great on the riff, and, and it did. So, yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, and the second track is Halfway to Heaven, which I believe was a single. Yeah. Really cool song. I, I like that. I like the groove of that. And, and uh, yeah, what? what? Yeah, I, have, I have a lot of input of that track as well with the finger picking riff and all that, which wasn't at all on the demo. Hmm. Um, yeah. What did Jim Valance add to that song? Can you remember? Well, I don't really know exactly what he added to the song, but. I mean, it feels like a Jim Allen song a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. It's got that big anthemic chorus. Yeah. I can't really put my finger on it, but I bet it's involved in the chorus. Yeah. Um, The third song, I'll Cry For You. Yeah. Nice one as well. Yeah. That was cool. It was a completely different approach on the verses, almost like 
do two thinking or something else. Yeah, yeah, melodic nice song. Yeah, and of course, the next song is your first writing credit on it, Little Bit of Lovin'. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one. To my recollection, something we came up on on tour, you know, in the, in the dressing room, just playing guitars. You know, I was playing in a riff, and he was, and Tony Joe was singing away. Mm-hmm. That was an easy one to put together, and, and one, one, one of those songs you write really fast. Eh? Yeah. And, yeah, I like to go with that one. Yeah, and the next song is, is Talk to Me. Right, talk to me. Yeah, I don't remember much of that song to be quite frank. Okay, now, I, I, I remember thinking it had a beautiful pre-chorus. You know. Yeah. The next song I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the next song I absolutely love, and you you had a writing credit on this is Seven Sign. Oh yeah, yeah, that's another one that came up on tour during a sound check. I just started playing that riff, and everybody sort of joined in. It's such a simple riff. You, you, you just pedal the bass, and, and Joey started singing away at it, and then we decided some more parts. Another fast one to write. Yeah, I like that. It's got a slight, almost ACDC touch over it, which I enjoy. Mm. Now, the next song is the title track, and I think this is a bit left field from the, the, the whole album. It's very, very Queen-influenced, um, I think. Yeah. And... One of the things that Bo, Bo Hill told me was that Prisoners in Paradise was was named because of where you were prisoners living in paradise, that that's where the album title came from. Uh, is that true? Yeah, and it was Herbie Herbert who came up with it. Herbie named, came up with the expression. I don't know if you know much about Herbie Herbert, but he, was, he came up with the name Journey for the band Journey, and he was involved in all their album titles and even the the album sleeve designs. He was like an invisible member of the band. And he, he had a lot of great ideas and inputs. And he, he just mentioned that once uh, in the studio, I guess. You guys are like, because we had to go back and forth to the West Indies, to the Turks and Caicos Islands. And, uh-huh. and he said, wow, you guys have to go there, really? You guys are like prisoners in paradise. And that kind of stuff. Joey, so that's where it came from. Hmm. And the next song you have a writing credit on as well is Bad Blood. Oh, yeah. That's a fun thing. Also, a lot of those Richard things are stuff that I came up with and, and showed to Joey. And we just worked it out real fast. I remember we were staying at either, I guess, Fuller Street in Hollywood. And, uh, and I said, come over to my, come over to my flat and I'll show you a riff and I'll show the riffs to Joey and he immediately come up with a verse idea, which is pretty much the song. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was also one of those very natural writing. Yeah. Flow to it. Um, that's, that's a cool one. That's a cool solo on that one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The next track, Homeland, is obviously written about being away from home. Being tax exiles. Yeah. Um, that's a really right, cool yeah. cool song as well, I think. I love that one. Yeah, I'm really, it's got a very nice feeling. That's one of those songs that could have been recorded today and it would still be relevant, so to speak. I mm. remember also very vividly that Rod Stewart wanted to record it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We, we were 
we did, we hadn't released the album yet, and we had a meeting at Lime Nation. It was then called Emma Telstar in Sweden. And Thomas Johansson, who later became the CEO of Lime Nation, he told us that he played back Homeland to uh, Rod, who's a good friend of his, and he loved the song and wanted to record it for his new album. And I said, wow, yeah, why shouldn't he? And Joe went, no, we can't afford to lose it. But the thing is, I said, why, why don't we both do it? But he, maybe he's not as playful as I am. Let, let me put it that way. <laughs> now, the next song you, you co-wrote as well, um, Got Your Mind in the Gutter. Uh, and Bo Hill has co-writes on this. So you, what did Bo add to this song? Oh, yeah, he added a lot. I mean, and he also plays keyboards on it. They're very subtle keyboards on it. It's sort of a brass part, but I think they really elevate the song. He, he immediately, I had like this really cool uh, uh, riff thing going on. And he uh, immediately got that. And he liked the verse and the bridge. And he, he, he didn't enjoy the chorus, which, which was obviously completely different then. So he, he came up with the chorus. He sang the melody in front of me and Joey, and exactly like it is on the record. He just heard it in his head and sang it to us, and that was it. Mm. So you got to give the guy credit. Yeah, great guy, great musician. Yeah, yeah. Next did, up. You know, he, did you know he's the best tambourine, tambourine player in the world? Man's got to know his limitations. Yes. The thing is, he was asking us when we, when all the drums and bass, all the basics were put down. He asked us, you know, who who in the band does the tambourine, and and you know, uh, Ian didn't like to do it, the drummer. Yes. And I said, well, I sometimes do it, but I'm not really good. And but then he said, well, in that case, uh, I can do it because I'm the best. <laughs> he went out there and re- and recorded all the songs more or less just on the first take the whole song through unbelievable and playing the tambourine is so hard if you want to be really tight to the drums wow he what? kicks ass on the tambourine I don't know if that's the <laughs> thing even but. if I'm you know what if I ever interview him again I'm going to bring that up oh you got it yeah and he's a great keyboard player I mean he he's he very musical yeah well awesome. I you probably want that in a producer key. You, you you want a guy who can play that can come into the studio and show you what he's looking for. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't. You were maybe I misunderstood you. Could you take the question again? Yeah, you want a producer, I think, that can come into the studio, pick up an instrument, and and play what he's looking for from you, rather than some producers. What they'll do is. They're, they're engineers, but they can't really play an instrument, and it's it's maybe harder for them to get their ideas across. Well, it's yes and no, because Ron Nelson is a is an engineer producer. He doesn't play play instruments at all. But we had really, I mean, working even working out today works really great. So it doesn't have to be a musician really. And and Bo almost never used his. He never played an instrument in front of us to get his thing across. He oh. wants to explain it and demonstrate it. The only thing he ever touched the musical instrument in the studio was when he was doing the tambourines, of course, which is already legendary. Yeah. And when he plays, when he played the subtle keyboards on uh, "Mind and the Gutter," 
Okay. Okay. So, but, okay. But it was shiny too that it was so musical. I think it's to to answer the question correctly. I I would rather be annoyed if somebody would pick up an instrument to start to play when they're produce, supposed to produce me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's move on to the the next song. Till my heart beats down your door. Yeah. Any memories oh, of that? That's uh, yeah. I never liked that track at all. It, I think it's uh, Fiona who was the co-writer on that one. She Fiona was. was Bo Hill's then wife. Yeah. 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 She's she, she's credited with the lyrics on it. Now the last track I'm a big fan of. Uh, Girl from Lebanon. Oh yeah. That's that's a, one. That's a favorite, actually. Yeah, it's a really cool song. Yeah, so, so it's got the vibe and and, and the and the groove and everything in in one in one go. Yeah, and also also it's very it's not so complicated. Okay, it has the immediate feel. Okay, one of the, one of the best songs Joey wrote, I think. Yeah, it's a super it's song. Got that melodic sense. Yeah, it's like a girl from Lebanon and. Uh, Sign of the times from this world is very melodic, minor things. Hmm. That's very, very tempted. You know, looking back at the records right now, it's, it's a fucking miracle I'm not a co-writer on more of the songs. I've heard that key from a lot of musicians. That you know, you, yeah. have, you have the fine line between writing the song and being involved in arranging it. Where's the? Where is that line? Yeah. For instance, I mean, Princess of Paradise came in kind of late, and we had, he didn't have an idea for the solo. So I took the chorus from the song that I wrote previously called Eye of the Storm. I took the entire chorus and put it in, which I played solo over. So that that entire part, the guitar solo, it's the song that I wrote previous to this, uh, uh, which then the whole solo, if you render the solo part from that song. Then goes into the the breakdown chorus. Still, I didn't get a songwriting credit. But those times were strange too. I mean, if somebody if somebody had an idea for a song, they could, might as well claim that they wrote the whole thing. You know, it wasn't as generous as it tends to be today. It's still very unfair. I mean, I think I I put a lot of effort into those songs, and uh, you hear a lot of me on them. And if you would change the guitar player, it wouldn't have been the same song. For instance, "You're from Lebanon." It's very obvious that that would have been a different song if somebody else was playing it. But what can I say? Those were the times. And also, I remember Bo Hill. Said, I asked him about the credits, and, and and he said, "I mean, you don't have to put me on the credits." He said, "It's up to you. You're the originator of the song." And I said, of course I'm going to put you on. You came up with the bloody chorus. Of course mm. I'm going to put you as the writer on the song. But it was different then. Yeah. So you you said earlier on, Key, when you handed in the record, that the, the label wanted more songs on it that were ba- more more like ballads. How, how many songs were taken yeah. off the record and what songs were put on it? Oh, man. Uh, I don't remember how many got taken off but I, I, a lot of them from a lot of songs from uh, the, the Baron Boyce batch was, was meant for the album like uh, Wild Child uh, Rainbow Warrior I, I don't remember if we recorded them with both 
if they got that far, but and also uh, Break Free. That wasn't on the album, was it? Break I Free. It was, no, Break Free wasn't on this. No, it wasn't on that. So, uh, and that was definitely recorded. Uh, with the government man, a lot of stuff were taken away. I I can't remember remember how many it was, but it was definitely a game changer that we had to take away all those riffy songs and and put in halfway to heaven and uh, I cry for you uh, and even uh, the title track. Yeah, it was definitely changing the the the, the face of the album for sure. Okay, okay. I just got a couple of questions about this album before I spend a few minutes talking about Out of This World Key. In general, sure. in general with Europe, um, who, who's the serious guy in the band and who's the practical joker? <laughs> well, uh, the serious guy in the band, I don't know. I mean, we were all like pretty much joking around. The serious guy. Well, I guess you could say John Levin is very serious. He looks very serious. Anyway, <laughs> <at least. laughs> and he doesn't say much, so you don't know if he's pissed off or just quiet. You know, it's hard to tell. Okay. <laughs> sometimes I have to poke him to see him if he was alive. <laughs> <laughs> so you hold the mirror in front of his nose and shit. <laughs> so, and you're all, you're all practical jokers. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of that. And I remember a funny thing, uh, because uh, John Levin has a bit of a clumsy side. I mean, he's a great musician and all that. No doubt, no doubt about that. But we got a cassette tape from some fans on a European tour where they had made a best of John Levin's falls on stage. And it was like 10 times funnier than any Brothers Marx films I ever saw. It was just <laughs> hilarious. He was falling over wedges, you know, on his own feet, and uh, it was amazing. So and we would all laugh uh, to that stuff, you know, even John. So <laughs> it wasn't, nobody laughed at that. But we, we liked practical jokes and, 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 and all that. Mm. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you still in contact with any of the members in the band? And uh, no, not really. I mean, uh, I meet Ian Howland every so often when I'm uh, on Rock Classic, Rock Classic, the, the classic rock station in Stockholm. He's a DJ there since many years. I can't remember, fifteen years or something. Uh-huh. So I sometimes bump into him there and, you know, on gigs or whatnot. But the others I haven't seen in a long time. I know that Mick and Ian came to uh, the release party for my Scaling Up solo album in 2016 at the Harlow Cafe in, in um, uh, Stockholm. Uh, but I never got a chance to speak to Mick before he left, but I met Ian there. But the others I haven't seen since, I guess, yeah, I guess uh, the Sweden Rock press conference when uh, when I played the DC action there and in, in, in Europe playing, I guess. Okay. When, 2006. Wow. Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, now yeah. Key, when the, when the band split up, was it amicable? Like, were you were you still getting on with everybody in the band? 
Well, I mean, we had our differences as regards of how to continue the saga, so to speak. No doubt about that. Uh, but I, I didn't have hold a grudge against them in any way. But um, And I also think it was a good decision to not make Europe a two-guitar band. It would have been two guitar players dragging in opposite directions, and it never worked for anyone that I can remember having such diametrical opposites playing the guitars in one band. I don't think that's it's workable. It's not doable at all. Mm. But uh, to be quite frank, I mean, me and Joey had a little <laughs> had a bit of a problem from the get go. I don't know if you heard about that. When when I was drafted for the band, so to speak, in 1986, Manish wanted me badly to join the band. And at first I turned them down. But after thinking about it over the week, and I, I agreed to do it. I remember, this was before the real break with the final countdown had happened. So it was big in Sweden and Japan, but not much more than that. This was before we started to take off. So... Uh, I had a lot of demands to Thomas Erkman when I came back on that Monday, and I wanted to. I remember I said I want to. I want to sing at least one of the tracks on Mother This World, uh, and I also said that I, I want to be part of the co-writing on on one percent of the songs making the album. And he said yes to everything, you know. Mm. So when I got into the band, it wasn't after I wrote the contract for. John Normal for a million crowns, which I did also, and I was really part of the whole deal. That I realized that he's not—he was lying straight to my face. He was just telling me shit I wanted to hear to get me into the band. So that was obviously not a, a good start. We didn't come over on a, on a on a good start, me and Joey, because of this. I thought it was bullshit, you know. Mm. And that's one also one of the reasons why I demoed. I did like eight songs I wrote I earmarked for for uh, this while I wrote, I wrote this especially for the project and I got one on there and then the other co-writes I'm on there and that's stuff that happened during rehearsals and whatnot. Uh, and there's a lot of other songs that I hadn't planned for the album which didn't happen so um, see what <laughs> already from the beginning it was the beginning of the end yeah. <laughs> now, so, some, somebody told me in an interview, and you can tell me if this is true or not. Um, when you joined the band, you became a, a paid-up member of the band, that you weren't brought in as, on a salary, and that when the band split up, you held on to your membership, and when they got back together with John Norum, you still held your membership of the band. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, but I do, first of all, let's get this straight because I'm actually dealing with with the papers of all this. You know, and we're, we're doing we're going through all the papers from the, the guy in Switzerland that was, you know, uh, the accountant that was taking care of Europe, the Europe company. Mm. But anyway, when I joined the band, uh, uh, I almost immediately. At least in 1987, I joined in 1986 in October. If it wasn't before the turn of the year, 
it was definitely 1907 that I, I bought uh, myself a spot in Europe as a fifth, a fifth member, mm. so to speak, yeah. replacing Norum. And Norum got one million crowns. So, it, I mean, really, uh, if you read the law, I'm still, I'm still a member of the band yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 it's just some, someone mentioned that to me. A, a couple of, couple of years if you think ago. Think about it. It's hilarious. Yeah. I just show up at gigs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you imagine? <laughs> it was fucking hilarious. I come in a, I come in a, a big old leopard dress and high heels, you know, <laughs> playing a twelve-string Rickenbacker guitar, you know. <laughs> So, Key, in, 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 the, in the couple of minutes yeah. I've got left to talk to you, tell me about the Out of This World project, um, how all that came about. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, we're cancer number two on the sales charts. I mean, we'll be topping the charts, the sales charts, for quite a while now. I mean, uh, this fall spring, it feels like it's going really well. I mean, the only deal we have right now is Japan. Uh, we did the rest of the crowdfunding thing, and you probably read about it. It's Ron Nevison mixing. Yeah. Don Airy guest playing, and uh, I mean the band is amazing. Tommy Hart, the singer from Fair Warning, and and then the, the rhythm section from Kim Marcello band, Dark Todd, who played with uh, Hot Leg and and The Darkness and, um, and Gary Moore and, and lots lots of other people, and then the Alien bass player Ken, who played with me since 2004. So the rhythm section I knew really well from beforehand, and. This whole thing started when we got together uh, on a project, me and Tommy Hart, called Keo Hearts. Yeah. And then uh, what happened was the red company, they, they uh, copyrighted Keo Hearts, which you might think is a funny thing to do. So, which meant they had con complete control over the project, and we weren't interested in that. So we left that Italian label, and... Uh, formed out of this world. And the reason why the reason why it's called out of this world is basically I have a uh, a publicist and she she suggested to me that to make this fly, you know, publicly, it would be better if we had some addition of recognition. So why don't you call the band Key Marcellus Europe? And I thought that was a really silly idea, and I never liked it when there are several guests and several factions out on the road. You know, it's, it's not cool at all. No, I would agree and with you. Tommy, yeah, and a friend of Tommy Hart in Japan came up with Out of This World. And the reason was it worked for Ronnie James Dio and, and the Black Sabbath guys when they were doing uh, uh, concerts with Ronnie James Dio doing the lead vocals. They named it after the album where that album, Heaven and Hell. Yeah. So uh, it's the same, the same line of reasoning almost, you know. So, and and I think that I have a lot of musicians out there out of this world. It's very much my album because I, well, I came with, you know, that was the first time I got the chance to introduce my playing to uh, the whole world. And then, uh, Selling all those million of albums surely helped as well. Yeah. So I, I, I think uh, a lot of people, especially in Asia, actually, they when they hear Key Marcelo, they think of the album out of this world. So 
why not call the van out as well? And that's why it happened. Mm. Yeah, and we figure like if it works for one of James Dio, it works for us. Um, are there any old songs that were worked up during the Europe days on this album? Yeah, well, I wrote a song for Prisons in Paradise, a ballad called In a Million Years. And that's actually, a, a, a top, I took the demo from uh, um, from uh, the Bahamas. I wrote it in the Bahamas, I remember. And uh, I had cassette tapes and quarter-inch tapes lying around in the storage. And I had them all baked, like you have to do with old tapes to, to play them back. Because it's so old, uh, and I got them on digital, and I, uh, so in the million years from the new this world album, it's actually I just re rewrote the lyrics completely, but they didn't match today, you know. But that's that. But that was supposed to be uh, Europe song. Mm. So, Key, tell everyone where they can get a copy of the record and get in touch with you. Yeah, right now. Outside, if you're not in Japan, you have to wait a little bit. We're signing with a, a big label. going to be more information about this after the summer. I mean, in, in August, I think we can we can reveal it. So uh, it's going to come some videos and singles you know, during the late summer and fall. Uh, that's all I can say for now because it's sort of a sort of a secret for now. Okay. But the manager is working right now uh, on signing a deal. With a, we have actually a lot of interest with labels. It's not a secret because you find being number one in the territory is very useful when you're in negotiation for a, for a new contract. Well, definitely, <laughs> it definitely, definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... so. So listen, Key, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope you're going to get out and do live shows with this band soon, if everything opens up. Yeah, yeah, we're. I mean, we're we're definitely working on it, and we're, latest January, we're definitely going out. Okay. Um, in the EU, at least, yeah. So it's definitely in the plans. Okay. And Japan, obviously, it's a no-brainer. We should go to Japan on a tour. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, well, Key, it's been an absolute—it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, um, and thanks for all those years of great music. I've, as a fan, I've really appreciated it. Thanks a lot, mate. Okay, Great. I'll be in touch, Key. Okay. Okay. Take care. Keep in touch. Right. Have a good one. Cheers. You too. Bye. 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 And there you go, Richie's chat with Key, all about Europe's 1991 release, Prisoners of Paradise. And as I said, you know, the beginning of the episode, talking about some of the differences, but what Key remembers with the process versus what Bo Hill did. And, uh, you know, Richie remembers a ton of it. I'm surprised he actually had to go back and listen to the original episode that it aired on to remember all that stuff, because usually he is kind of like a steel trap when it comes to uh, music facts. But uh, if you want to go back and revisit that episode, that would be uh, episode... 145. That one aired back in September of 2013. And also be on the lookout over the summer for uh, Key's latest one there from uh, from his Out of This World project. I don't know. Do we call it a project or not? Uh, I guess we will for now. Only considering that, you know, we talked about his Italian label that uh, he left to do this. And I'm thinking, well, Italian label, that has got to be the... Uh, Always and everywhere, Frontiers Records. So that is a wrap for the uh, the first half of 2021 for us here at Focus on Metal. 
as we go out and uh, attempt to enjoy the uh, 2021 version of summer. I know a lot of the shows that I had tickets for that got delayed. I was hoping to see this year. It looks like a lot of those are getting delayed till next year, but I'm hoping that there will be some good stuff that will pop into the schedule and maybe enjoy a little bit of live music over the summer. We'll see what happens. And of course, uh, we'll be back, you know, July, August, somewhere. We'll figure it out. I know that, you know, Richie's got a bunch of stuff going on. I got a bunch of stuff going on both here and, you know, in uh, the Focus on Metal Studios, as well as the normal pay the bills day job. It will probably be uh, an intense summer of work for me, but I'm still hoping to be able to enjoy some of it and, uh, you know, be back refreshed and raring to go. And we already have been talking about some stuff that we want to do for the second half of the year, as well as bring in some of the collaborators that uh, we've got out there as well that are uh, hoping to break free in the second half of the year and be able to uh, participate a bit more as well. And we'll just have to see what happens with that. But also, you know, on the subject of collaborators, this week is definitely going to be a sad week for us. Any of you that have, you know, listened to Focus on Metal for a long time, you uh, you may know that we've uh, we've have been airing on uh, Pure Rock Radio since day one of Focus on Metal's inception, right the way through the original Focus on Metal, and then through you know Focus on Classic Metal and Focus on Extreme Metal, and back to Focus on Metal. Everything, literally since day one, every show has been aired and aired first on Pure Rock Radio, and our collaborator, Rich Embry, has decided after a lot of thinking to shutter down the station and concentrate on some of his own shows and some other pursuits and things like that. So it's a sad day for us this week as uh, we this will be our final show that we're actually airing on Pure Rock as well. And, uh, you know, just kind of losing that collaborator, and we're definitely going to miss that. So, Rich, good luck to you, and, uh, you know, definitely keep in touch. Hopefully, we'll do something in the future together. And, you know, I I don't blame you for wanting to kind of spread a little bit, give yourself a little bit more time and all that. I'm definitely feeling it. I'm looking out the studio windows right now. It's sunny, little breeze going on, and it is just telling me to get out there in the summer weather and actually enjoy some stuff. So, uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie myself and everybody else here at focus on metal have yourself some great metal weeks we look forward to talking to you again and after our break and until then you can always keep up with uh, old episodes over at focus on metal.net focus on metalpod.com or on itunes and until we talk to you again as always remember focus on metal everything else is insignificant Still here? It's over. Go home.